Entrepreneur MBA podcast purpose is to help existing business owners grow their companies past the $10 million in revenue per year benchmark. Here is your host, Stephen Halasnik. Welcome, everyone. My name is Stephen Halasnik, and I am co-founder of Financing Solutions. Over the last 25 years, I've built six companies in the $5 million to $25 million range. Two made the Inc. 500 fastest growing companies in the United States. And I can't tell you how important it is for businesses to have a line of credit so they can make an investment in their business or even for unexpected emergencies. 12 years ago, my business partner and I, who also had his own business, we had been dealing with banks for years and years and years, and they were such a pain in the neck to deal with. I, I just, it was unbelievable what we needed to do to get a line of credit in place for our businesses. And so we thought that there was a need out in the marketplace for, for there's a lot of good businesses out there and there's businesses that really could benefit from having a line of credit just as a backup plan, just like we used it for. And so we started financing solutions uh, just to make it easier for small businesses to get a line of credit. Our line of credit program is easy to get in place, inexpensive when used, and costs nothing to set up, making it a great cash backup plan. If you'd like to learn more about our line of credit program, please visit us at fscreditline.com. That's FS as in Financing Solutions, creditline.com, or give us a call at 862-207-4118. And if you apply today, we'll even give you a $250 credit on file. But just remember, the time to apply for our a line of credit is when you don't need it. So that way, when you need it, it's there ready to go. Today, I'm very, very, very excited to be speaking with a friend of mine, George Barnett from the Strategy Toolkit. George is a strategy geek based in Silicon Valley, an engineer, diplomat, consultant, investor, and entrepreneur with two decades of experience working with companies of all sizes around the world as part of the Monitor Group and the Clear Lake Group. Since 2015, George has invested a disproportionate amount of time working with technology firms, growing new businesses based on cloud-based software, artificial intelligence, and quantum computing. George reads incessantly and thinks constantly about what it means for business strategy. George, welcome to today's Entrepreneur MBA podcast. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you, Stephen. Yeah, today's topic, and you know, we did a little bit of talking before we got online, and I had to slow George down because I was like, save it for the podcast. It's good stuff. Uh, today's topic is business strategy for entrepreneurs. So to start off with, George, I mean, do you think small businesses uh, are already good at thinking business strategy? Yeah, well, I, I, you and I talked about earlier the word strategy sometimes can convey something that is distant from the day-to-day activity of any type of entrepreneur or founder, especially on the smaller business side. But I believe everybody uses strategy. They just may not be aware of it or not, right? The more you have awareness of using strategy, then you can bring more things to bear. It's, it's similar to having more knowledge about finance or operations or sales and marketing. It's, it's, it's part of the toolkit that an entrepreneur needs to have in order to grow into a bigger and bigger sized company. Yeah, I think there's two parts to it too. One is very first off, having a strategy, Okay, (laughs) just having a strategy, not just saying, oh, well, I have this product that I think is good and I'm going to sell it. All right. That's not a strategy. All right. But the the second part of that is having a good strategy and 
And and I'll, I'll give you an example in this in a second. But having a good strategy that that someone else thinks has some validity to it, other than you, because <laughs> you know it. When you're an entrepreneur, you tend to believe in your own shit. Yeah. Well, don't I, you? Well, so let me give it an example that's going to date me. All right. Like everybody now talks about Uber like it's a verb. Right. But there was a time not that long ago when there was no Uber. Right. And, and, and that's like 10 years ago. I'm, I'm like one layer removed from the founders of Lyft. I remember when Lyft wasn't, wasn't really much of a thing, just a couple of kids. Uber was just Travis and a bunch of friends who had some black limos, right? And, and it was all about, hey, there's all these dudes who, will, who want to get a ride over the bridge, right? And they're willing to pay. They would be at the Bay Bridge, the San Mateo Bridge, the Richmond Bridge, and it was a way to deal with the tolls, right? And, and, and they would carpool. And so there are a bunch of carpooling things that people were trying to do. And, and all of a sudden, Travis is like, whoa, I can take this carpooling thing. I can take this black limo thing and I can turn it into something different. So I always say strategy is like saying, oh, my choices, where am I going to play in the marketplace? Right. And then how am I going to win a disproportionate share of the business? And so Uber made some strategic choices really early and they pivoted from a, you know, a limo service to the branded carpooling. Right. And then Lyft, when they saw that they were doing that, they're like, we're going to fast follow. And, and I'm using a lot of strategic language in this and I'm happy to come back and give you, you know, a drill done on anything, but fast follow means you see somebody else's startup is taken off. They've got more customers than they can serve. And you're like, I can do it better or different, and I can grab some of those guys. And, and all of a sudden, you're, it's number one and number two, racing the market. Yeah, you know, it, it, as you were talking about that, you know, it kind of dawned on me. It was a great example with Uber. Thank, that's a good story. I didn't know the story of Uber behind it. There's lots of other companies I know the stories behind it. And I think, you know, learning about how companies began and grew, I, it's it's very, very helpful as a business owner if you can continue to educate yourself about that. Because what, when you said this, you know, I over the lot, so many podcasts and so many years too, you know, the word pivot has always come about, right? Um, you know, the idea behind you learn something, uh, something maybe isn't as working as good, and then you pivot to something else. You know, I up to this point until you mentioned it, I only thought of a pivot being a product or a service, but it's also the strategy too, isn't it? Yes. It's the, it's the whole business model that you're trying to get rich with. Right. Um, and, and, you know, if you're on the other side of the table where you're an investor and I've been involved in, 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 uh, in a VC firm and as an angel investor, you're sometimes the source of the pressure on the team to change. Right. Because you're like, whoa, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing a pattern. Right. Let me give you an example. Right. I, I've seen at least five or six different startups and they've all tried to tackle the same thing. Right. Which is the last mile of data. Right. All this stuff is out there. All these mom and pops, all these things that are only semi on the Internet. Right. But if I roll them all up and I make that information available, let's say on a Google Maps platform with, with some type of integration with finance and, and logistics, I can make a lot of money, right? Well, hello, if it was that easy, it would have been solved 10, 15 years ago, right? Yeah. 
actual gathering of that information is really, really hard. And I had a couple of buddies down in Santa Clara and they were trying to do it with car repair shops, right? The moment you get into an accident, right? There's an app on your phone and it, and, and, and you just take some pictures of what's wrong with the car and it's going to all of a sudden send you out as like a, as a, as a project or a contract proposal to all the shops within say, say 20 miles. Right. And then they bid on it and then you pick the one nice idea. Right. But there's the, the, the gathering of that information and then the integrating of that is extremely hard, um, extremely hard. And so that, well, they, and I could take that across multiple verticals, but whenever I see that business model, I'm like, if you don't have as an input, the data already organized into a database, right? Then it's a waste of my time. Yeah, I mean, that idea too, I think it would be an issue. I mean, I'm thinking about when I got in an accident, I mean, my, what do I care what body shop I go to as long as if it's approved by the insurance company? You know, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to save some money. You know, I, I, I have a $500 deductible. So I just go where my insurance company uh, tells me to go. Although they did, what that was interesting is they did tell me to take some pictures and then I went right to the, the, the office, the, the body shop. And so, okay. so, that, so this is a great example, right? Right. Strategy has many flavors, right? Let's think of it as corporate, like the big, the whole idea of the company. And then you can take all the functions of a company and, and say, there's a strategy. So you're talking about uh, an example of the customer strategy, right? So if you are sitting there in one segment of the market and you've got uh, a very comfortable car insurance product and service, where a lot of things are already done smoothly for you and the insurance company is picking up some of those services, then, then you're like, I don't have a need for this app, right? But there's a big chunk in the market that doesn't have what you have, right? Mm. And they don't know, they don't have trusted relationships with shops. They don't have the technical hands-on knowledge of to know whether or not um, this is a good service that they're getting. And they, they don't even know how to change a tire, right? Um, and, and, and by the way, this particular uh, team was thinking of uh, um, uh, car mechanical naive customers, right? Okay. Uh, and then they may not have the wherewithal to be paying for a more premium car insurance product. And so their deductible is huge. Right. And so the actual choice of the shop becomes important and they get into fights with their insurance company all the time. Right. So be, be giving them something so that they are more knowledgeable and then they trust your app. That's where that that's where this group was coming from. And I was like, you know, the, the idea is great. I see it in various types of services, but it's this last mile data. Man, it's a big problem. Yeah, it's fair. I mean, I think I, I knew uh, there was more to like I was. It's always nice when somebody like when I had said the thing about the insurance, the first thing that came to my mind was, OK, what about the people who have very high deductibles? What about the people, you know, because like within the, honestly, in the state I'm in, nobody has super high deductibles. It's, you know, so so that intrigues me. Like I know when like I've actually had seven businesses, I say six, but, you know, it's it's what it's really interesting is when we go, my business partner and I go to look at business now, you know, we go and look at industries and then we dive into those industries and look for problems, right? Versus I think a lot of businesses that are first start, they, they start because the owner is 
you know, ticked off about something that they saw that they think could be done better, or maybe it's something they know already. You know, when you get more sophisticated in building uh, businesses, you I think you start off looking at certain industries that you think, oh, this could be a good target for us. And then you look for problems inside of that. Would you agree with that? That happens a lot. Right? And, and the example that came to mind as you were describing that is um, I'm uh, in early discussions with a, with a company based in um, uh, Idaho that, that matches uh, uh, independent truckers who have already delivered a load and now they're going to take the truck back and they have an empty uh, container, yeah. right? Yeah. And they need to uh, take something back with them in order to make money, right? Yeah. And the, the software that does that is called a, a load board, right? Lo a load board software. Well, you know, if you put that into Google, you're going to find that there's like 20 different people trying to get you to use their freemium product, right? Well, I mean, if you're just a guy who's driving a truck, right? You might not be part of any type of uh, intermediary that's going to vet for you whether or not you're taking on a risk or not, right? So you want to be able to have a matching platform, right, that allows you to, to make sure that you're not wasting any time or any fuel and you make as much money as possible taking that load back to wherever you're going, right? So that's where this company comes in and it's actually someone from the, the trucking industry themselves, but also with a software background who act charges for the software, right? And they have to make the case that don't use the free stuff because here's the 10 reasons why you're going to get screwed, right? If you actually pay for this and behind the payment is my brand association of all the things I'm going to give you so that you can run your business of driving, right? I will, I will run the business of matching, right? It's really, it's really fascinating to watch. Yeah, it's interesting to see how people get into those. So tell, do you know the background of those owners? Were they in the trucking business? Yes, yes. And, and, and they're, they've actually been around a long time. What they've done is they've added, they, they've gone from the old days of Oracle's ERP, you know, data, data yeah, software, yeah. and now it's SaaS, Enterprise SaaS, yeah. and, and they're very sophisticated. Right. So the good thing is they've had a they've had a product team, the software product team that's ridden all the innovations, right? All the way through. And that's why they're still in business today and growing. Right. You think there's a so let's say, you know, the, our listeners are all small businesses, right? And and everybody everybody at one time was a small business. Okay. Uber was a small business. We're all started off that way, okay? And, you know, the idea behind strategy, it's such a, a generic term, right? Mm -hmm. Have you ever come across a really great book, a really great website, a really great resource that really talks about, you know, how to develop different parts of strategy? You know, we talked about there's corporate strategy, there's product strategy, there, there could be internal strategy, uh, you know. I don't even know enough about it. Has there been a good resource that you could recommend to our listeners? So I tend to to divide up the the types of strategy and then look for my go-to person depending on the type, right? And, and the examples that I have um, would be, you know, it, let's say you want to get better with your investment strategy. You you're starting to accumulate cash, right? For I, I would I would hope, right? Um, uh, through your business, right? I mean, like, what do I do with that so that I can either, if I'm, if I've invested enough back into my business, 
and then I'm throwing off cash on top of that, right? The person that I always like to go to is Benjamin Graham, right? He's the, he's the classic guy. His, his book is called The Intelligent Investor, right? And he will tell you what to do with the, pro the good problem of a cash pile that's growing, right? Now, of course, before that, you're going to be wanting, you know, a, a general corporate finance person is going to say, hey, how much do you actually reinvest back into your company? You know, how, how do you manage the cost properly? There may be even a tax dimension of that. I don't have a perfect person for that, but when it, but for the element of corporate finance that I am involved in right now, which is how do you value something that's privately held or how do you value something that's publicly held? The, the number one book is, is by Tom Copeland, right? And it's called Valuation. He used to belong to monitor, the monitor group. Right? So I, 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 I go way back with this guy. Um, and it's super, super important. I'm going to tell you a personal anecdote. I'm the CEO of a startup company on the side. We're having a litigation fight with, with a European um, uh, supplier of IP, right? And, the, and where we first hit with the judge is what's the value of the asset that you're fighting over? And it's private. Right. So we're going to be bringing in a valuation expert from our side. They're going to be bringing in a valuation expert from their side. I, as the CEO of a very small company, meaning, you know, it's like anywhere. If you believe us, it's 40 million. If you believe the other side, it's 2 million. You know, so we're fighting in that range. Right. Um, we need, I need to know how to assess my valuation expert properly. Right. I need to know how to have a good conversation with them. And I need to make sure that what comes out the other end is, is, a, is a number that makes sense, which means I have to, you know, go back to my, my spreadsheet and my, my financial models and say, how did I even come up with this number? And that includes like, how did I come up with my, my, my um, projections of sales? What were all the factors? Where did I get my evidence behind it? What's the cost side of it? What are the risks? What, what do I use as my uh, discount factor? to get net present value. All those things I need to do as a small business entrepreneur, I may or may not have ever gone to business school, but if you read Tom Copeland's book, it's right there, right? And then one yeah. other example is about, about because you know, we, we were talking about hard skills, right? The quant of the valuation, the, the ability to know how to use investment tools, but there's also the human side of running a business. And I, 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 I don't want small business people to leave that soft skill side apart because it's just as important. It's the psychology of the people who work with you and the psychology of the people that you're competing against, right? And so the number one person for understanding how do people think is Daniel Kahneman, and he has a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. Oh my uh. God. It's a long book, but every chapter I was like, oh my God, I never knew that about people, right? Why wow. do they react the way they do? How can you affect the way in which they react? These things are important. What about uh, 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 one more book about overall business strategy? Um, just, you know, more on a just product or service strategy and how to really, can you think of one? I mean, I mean, do you well, think so? Do you so think Drucker is still appropriate nowadays? I mean, he's so, it's so old. Um, well, well, it's funny. Before I mentioned Drucker, of course, there's always the, 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 the what I call the, uh, the category of business book that is represented by In Search of Excellence, um, you know, Seven Habits, uh, rich, yeah. rich Dad, Poor Dad. I mean, there's an entire publishing machine that tries to, you know, 
attract uh, a market by saying, just read my book and you'll get rich. Right. Mm. And a lot of it is just storytelling. Right. And without any uh, uh, reason for you to believe that that story applies to you. Right. You have to use your instincts to figure out whether or not that thing that happened 10 years ago over there with that company is actually going to do anything for me. Right. And, and, you know, it, if it helps you um, build your um, uh, reference set of experiences, great. Um, but you have to always have a healthy skepticism about whether or not you can translate or copy or imitate that exact yeah. circumstance into your circumstance, right? Yeah, that's and fair. That, I mean, it's fair. Now, Drucker was different. And, and you know, in full disclosure, um, I still work uh, off and on with the Drucker School, right, down, down at Claremont, right? And so I have a lot of respect for the body of research and, and work that that group does, right? Um there are certain things that are timeless that, that he uh, did research on and that they continue to do research on. Some things need to be updated, right? Um, but there are general management principles for which he is amazing, right? Um, but if you're saying, can I take some product strategy ideas that he was looking at in the late 50s, early 60s? Maybe not. Yeah. I would just for our listeners, uh, one of the books that I would highly recommend, I mean, uh, you know, is for small business, I think it was one of the books that made a huge impact on me is Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Robert Kobiowski, which um, which was a, a really great book about, you know, um, how to try to make sure you have assets um, that are producing passive income, that whole idea. You know, rather it be a business, rather it be real estate. You know, one one of the I, I'll, I'll let you in, uh, George, and something I, I never really told anybody. It's not like it's oh my god, but um, so I kind of felt what I learned throughout the years. This is you know over a twenty seven year period of career is sometimes the businesses that you get involved with. You, you know, I always thought that they would pivot somewhere. Right. I remember the second business I did, I really thought, you know, this isn't going to be my end game. But I thought, you know, you got to be in it. And again, I was only 32 at the time. And and so I thought that business would somehow pivot. And and, um, you know, I got it to about six million in, in sales. Great profits, by the way, just great profits. But I never could pivot the business. Right. I just couldn't. And, um, and then I did another business like that, that I got to 11 million and I, they were both at the same time. And I said to myself, you know, and I, I had a hard time pivoting that business. So I said, you know what? I think this whole idea about pivoting and getting into certain industries, there's a, there's a certain luck that comes to it. You, you learn something and all of a sudden you get into this space where it's a you know, potentially $100 million potential, you know, it really can be a big company, right? And sometimes you just can't find it, right? When you're in the, in the pivot. So I said, you know what? Okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm just going to keep opening up small little businesses. And, and, you know, combined, there'll be 50, 60, $70 million. Instead of saying, okay, I want one business to be 70 or 80 or not. Now, I know sometimes the world that you're playing in, which is a lot more investors and you're looking for bigger payouts, is a little different. But the whole idea here was, you know, I came up with the idea, which was, 
I don't need to have just one business. I could have a couple of different businesses and combined, they'll get me to where I wanted to be. Part of that came from Robert Kobiaski's book where, you know, he talked about uh, real estate uh, being one of the small business owners greatest way of building net worth. And so with the profits that I had from that second company, I brought a beautiful commercial building which you know has just appreciated so much over 20 years and it has allowed me to leverage that building to have great lines of credit or financing. So I kind of skin the cat a different way than just having to say, okay, I'm going to make it with one business. And so this is an example of a strategy that I kind of had developed over a period of time. I mean, what do you think about it, a whole idea? And no, it's, it's, it's fantastic. And, and it, reinforces things that I've learned um, in my, my time here in the U.S. I mean, I'm, I'm originally from Canada, right? And yeah. you know, I've talked about that. Um, but I did my my um, business studies here in the U.S. And I was a diplomat when I went to business school. And then from there, went, went into strategy consulting, right? The three things, I mean, imagine someone who has, who has no economics background being introduced to hardcore business in the U.S., right? And, and I, I, I walked out of that program and I went, there's three really valuable life lessons that are U.S. specific that I have learned. Number one, right? And this was in Economics 101, right? They refer to it as the time value of money, right? Mm. Most people don't think time can be translated into cash, right? The moment that light bulb goes off, right? All kinds of business ideas start sparking all over the place. For instance, you know, I, you can actually make a business out of paying people to line up for you to get tickets for something that are scarce, right? Happens all over the world, right? But oh, time value of money. Second one is you can make your cost of capital just by being smart on taxes and your tax yes. strategy. It's such a complicated game in the United States compared to many, many other countries. When we would look at things, quite often a deal would go or no go based on the six or 7% difference you can make by having a smart tax strategy, right? And then third, and it came from my buddies who were at UCLA Business School, it's if you look across all the people who've made fortunes in the history of the United States, the number one way they did it was real estate. Yeah. And I was like, you know, you, you, you think, oh, no, Silicon Valley and software and maybe railroads and, you know, all, all kinds of like big, chunky things. But no, real estate has very interesting tax games associated with it. And if you're really smart about it, you can make good money out of real estate. And so having a real estate strategy as part of whatever business you're doing, I mean, I know a lot of entrepreneurs who swear by it. Let me give you one ad one additional example of that. Um, one of the first angel groups I, I got involved in is called Koretsu, and they got uh, they no. Got, I knew Koretsu. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are, they have branches all over. I the was place. part of them. Yeah, so I went into the San Francisco one, which had like three branches in the Bay Area, and you know, out of the hundred guys, uh, ma mainly guys, but the hundred people who were there coming to the regular meetings, right? At least seventy of them their depth was in real estate. And then you'd, you'd have your five or six pitches every morning over breakfast. And like three of them are twists on the real estate game and really complicated. But it was all about 
understanding in minute detail the flow of cash over time and what you could charge for it. And if you were spinning off cash, this a reinvestment component to it. So in a sense, it became like a dividend, right? Or, or an annuity. And, and, and all of a sudden you had cash that you can then invest in another business. So what you were describing, uh, instead of the capability of pivoting something from, let's say, 10 million in sales to something that's 50 million in sales, you were saying, you know, I actually have an ability to have a holding company or a conglomerate, you know, a, a smaller right. version of a conglomerate, right? Across which I have controlling ownership right? And I can apply my smarts across it. It's not that different from, from various forms of private equity. And you were fueling and you are fueling it, right? With uh, excellent cash from real estate. Yeah. The thing was, um, you know, the book, you know, the second, I think that it's the second biggest expense that people have is their taxes that they pay. And they don't think of it. They don't think of it as an expense. Unlike an expense, you can reduce it. You know, the number, I think the number one biggest expense, personal expense that people have is their mortgage. And then the second one is their tax. I think that's the case. But you learn that, I learned that through that book. Well, what had happened with the second company, I had, you know, it's kind of a funny story. My accountant at the time, he was down in Princeton, New Jersey, and I was about an hour and 15 minutes away. So he calls me on the telephone and he goes, this is, this is 22 years ago or something. He goes, I, he's an older guy. And he calls me up and he goes, I got to come up and see you. I'm like, uh Oh, you know, I'm like, you know, an hour and 15 minutes away. And he doesn't want to talk about it on the phone. So he comes up, sits down in my, in his, in the chair in front of my desk. He goes, you're gonna have to pay some taxes this year. I go, (laughs) okay. Right. I think my business was like a $3 million business at the time. All right. He goes, you're going to have to pay $280,000 in taxes this year. Ouch. Right. And I mean, that was like, holy, let's use the word, holy shit. Right. Because I wasn't used to hearing that type of money. Right. We, again, we were a very profitable company. And I'm not going to get into details as to why, but I said, okay. Well, what are we going to do that doesn't happen next year, right? And what happened was, you know, I think I was reading that book at the time or, or I started reading it and I started looking into it. And, you know, it was, you know, I saw that real estate would allow me to right reduce up. that tax burden going forward. And, you know, the, uh, there's a lot more details to it. I just happened to find a building super cheap that was super gorgeous and, you know, and listen, for all our listeners that are out there, if you had asked me, like I own uh, right now four companies, right? Two of them, well, I would say three of them are in, are in finance, but really two of them are in finance, right? If you had asked me 20 years ago, would I own a finance company? I'd say, is no way. I don't understand it, okay? But I found a partner who did, mm-hmm. okay? And- I do a lot of things that he's not good at and he does the financing and the back office stuff that he's excellent at and combined. So like I've never, my, my message to our listeners is don't let what you think you don't know stop you from going into an area that you see as an opportunity. 
I mean, I went into the nurse staffing business. I went into the technology staffing business. I went into the digital printing business. I went into the finance uh, line of credit business for businesses. I went into the funeral funding business and I went into real estate. Uh, you know, the, the commonality and all these things, it's about running a business. That's the commonality. So, you know, go ahead. What were you going to say? So, so two things you ran. The first one is you, you kept asking me like, who should we be reading? Right. Right. Well, there's another guy I used to work with. His name is Michael Jensen. Right. Um, and he thinks about, you know, the definition of a company. Right. And, or they call it the, the boundary of the firm or the organization. And, and that's just a fancy way of saying who's an employee or an owner and who's outside as a partner. Right. This is a big strategic decision you have to make. And you've got to be honest with yourself. Even if it's just you in the mirror and a bottle of beer, like you've got to be honest with yourself. What can you do? Yes. And if you can't do it, don't be embarrassed, right? That's when you either say, I want it inside the boundary of the company and therefore I need a partner, right? Or an employee that I can count on and trust and they're not going to stab me in the back and all that kind of stuff. Or I want it outside the firm, like your accountant, yep. right? Right? Yeah. And but a trusted partner with all the contracts and you know things that that that, that protect the both parties, right? But that's a decision about how exactly you're going to handle things, right? And sometimes it's an instinct, and sometimes it's a, it's a game changer about whether or not you can scale and become a bigger firm, right? The second the second part on this though is you know there are times when you're going to make this decision. And then you're going to change your mind because the timing has changed. You use the term luck. I use the term timing of the opportunity. Right? Yeah. An example is one of my buddies from, from business school. Uh, he's in Singapore. I'm down there for a, for a business trip. And he takes me out for drinks You know, at one of the yacht clubs or whatever the hell it was. Right, And this is, oh, God, 2012 or anything. We go in, right? And- Everything is digital, right? You'd think it was like post-COVID, right? But this is almost 10 years ago, and you're doing everything without uh, employees, and it's electronic, and the menu either shows up on your phone or it's on some type of software at the table, and, and all of a sudden, the food and drinks magically appear. And I'm like, oh, dude, we need this in every bar in, in America. I want this now, right? I come back here and it's like paper menus and blah, 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 people with attitude. It took COVID yeah. to make that happen. Now it's almost impossible to find a menu anywhere. Yes. Right? But it was yes. the timing. If I'd have tried to make a little company that was going to like digitize the, the way in which restaurants order, like you know a lot of them tried to do, they went nowhere. Because the customers weren't ready for it. Now the customers are demanding That's it. That's true. It's crazy. Yeah, I, it is crazy. I think I think one of the advantages, listen, I've met so many business owners and um, so many of them feel like they have to do, they have to be good at everything. They have to, yeah. you know, be, and, and so you're talking about bringing in a consultant. See, I have like, I have dyslexia. So for me, I'm not, I'm so used to figuring out a way to get somebody else to do something because I'm not really good at, you know, a lot of things that to me, I have no problem having no ego 
about somebody coming in and doing something. Whereas what I've seen with other business owners, they almost considered it like an insult if they can't do it themselves. And I'm like, I, I don't have that problem because all I care is about the end game. What, how are we going to win? Okay. I don't care. Like if I, I played basketball when I was younger, played a lot of sports, but I played basketball. There's one, there's one guy on my team named Ricky, right? Unbelievable score. Okay. I was great at rebounding and passing and making problems on defense. Guess what I want to do? I wanted to win. I just kept getting the ball to Ricky. Okay. Because my team was going to win. Right. If I got the ball to him. So I don't care. My end game was I want to win this game. I, my end game wasn't I want to score all the points and be, you know, the guy on the team. That wasn't my end game. So to me, bringing in people from the outside, using your employees, um, you know, being creative about how you get problems solved. That's a sign of a really great entrepreneur. So, so you're touching on various aspects of leadership strategy, right? And, and, and there's a lot of good material out there and, and, and a lot of um, thought leaders that, that, that can be really helpful for that. Having an awareness of what type of leader you are as an entrepreneur. That's true. And the people that you can actually lead, right? What you need of them to do is extremely important, right? Now, the second part on this, though, is sometimes these things have to, like, you, you have to grow, you can't just be the same way forever, and that's hard. And that's where the whole coaching industry comes in, where they can help you add to your strengths with more strengths. The one that we've I've just talked about recently, which I find fascinating, is under Jeff Bezos, right? Amazon quietly had a, a salary cap, right, for all their executives. It was like one hundred sixty or one hundred eighty thousand a year. Everybody got that right? The differentiation for the executives was in the equity. And because the equity was always growing in price, that's where all the upside was, right? Well, when COVID hit, that started to fall apart. Now, some yeah. might say it's because Bezos left and, and, you know, and, and Jaffe's having his troubles and all that kind of stuff. But they found out that once the stock started going down in price, that's the trigger all of a sudden they're like, I don't want to be paid the same amount as, as this other dude when I work twice as hard or I'm more important or, you know, I have a bigger budget, whatever it is. Right. And so they've now just announced a change for the first time in, in like whatever number of years that, that, that the cap is much higher to deal with the fact that they were losing so many executives. Yeah. Well, the turnover. Yeah. Yeah. So this, I yeah. Mean, this is, you know, we've been talking about this whole post COVID world. How did the, how did your company deal with, a once in a lifetime pandemic. How did you get through this damn thing? And now as it's unraveling and we're going into a new normal, what are the strategic decisions that you're making? And it doesn't matter whether it's a really small firm or a really big firm, surviving this and then being smart about how I can grow my business coming out of it, whether you're the Peloton guy or the Zoom guy, or you're the restaurant over here on Burlingame Avenue, you're all trying to figure out how do I actually become more successful taking advantage of a shock right because that's how that's where money is made yeah you know and th it's funny because um i'm going to jump back into something but there there were there were two things that i've learned over no let's not let's say two things two of the things i learned over 25 plus years 
One was when I was in the printing industry, and that is um, when when an emergency comes up for people, um, they will pay whatever price to get it resolved as long as the emergency is a big enough problem. So there's a lot of money to be made there. The gross margins in an emergency business is astronomical. Yes, it's vertical. Yeah. So it's, it is unbelievable. Okay. Um, the second thing I just, you know, we talked about, well, not a second, but you know, we talked about real estate being like over history. No one history, history has proven to be real estate has always been a great place to invest. Mm-hmm. Right. You have to look at the long term. sometimes certain some, it can't be just, okay, I'm going to buy this building and rent it out. You, you know, there's, it's complicated. Okay. That, you know, that's another proven thing. The third thing that I've, you know, that I kind of knew is that those who are in financing, they really do well. (laughs) They really do well. You know, they know how to hedge their bets and yes, it's a little bit more complicated, but so there, you know, there, these are all things that you talk about going into an industry if you look at a broad industry and you say, okay, well, where is there issues where there's an emergency that goes, that, that is going to, that is going on and maybe there's an opportunity for a business in that space. That's the way I think. So, so two quick examples. Like I, I, as I look, think back to two years ago, March, 2020, right. When, when the shock of, Oh, for the first time in your life, you're going to be locked down. And you're like, hello? Right? right? If and, and your kids are going to have to go to school online, right? And everybody's going to have to work in some crappy house in order to get stuff done. Now, imagine, right? Somebody, the equivalent of Geek Squad, had gone out with a loudspeaker, house to house, street by street, and said, if your internet sucks, I'll fix it, Right? And people would have come out of their houses saying, help me, help me, help me. They could have driven around and made a killing. Second one is like, oh, your stores have run out of stuff. And I have a big Amazon truck behind me and I'm selling it out the back, right? People would have been buying stuff off those trucks going up. Now, I know it sounds like the Great Depression, right? Which my ancestors went through and yours did too, right? But people were acting quick on their feet and arbitraging problems with supply and yes. demand and thinking really fast. And it was cash, right? They weren't doing this on Venmo, right? They were like, I want this. And, and like you said, the pricing is amazing, right? Now, on this financing topic, if you have money, you can make money, right? A lot of the things that we read about that sound really easy, right? And people made huge percentages. They had to come in with a significant slug of cash in order to play, whether it's Robin Hood or anything else, right? But once your business is throwing off cash, you can make more, right? And when I, when I write about strategy and history, I'm always fascinated by, wow, this group of people at this time got disproportionately wealthy because they were given permission by society to work in finance. And in some cases there were rules about whether you could charge interest 
on a loan. And in many circumstances, it was against the law to do that unless you belong to this one group of people. And you know what? Over time, that one group of people became disproportionately wealthy because the moment you can charge for the time value of money, you are in the banking business and you're, you're guaranteed to do well. Yes. Right? It's amazing, yes. right? I mean, I, if, I could, if I went back in time, I would want to make sure that my family was somehow involved in banking because I would never have to worry about them for hundreds of years. Yeah, and I still feel like with my own kids that, um, like I, uh, uh, George knows a little bit of my twenty-one-year-old son. I kind of asked him to advise him. Um, Michael's uh, next growth step. He's such a great kid. He just, you know, he and I strategize all the time about where he should be headed. And his as soon as he graduates from college, which is this year, he, he's going to be taking um, a personal finance course. Uh, not from a college, but from a, a friend that I know that I'm going to make sure he understands everything in regards to personal financing, because it's such an important skill set that, that, that people have to understand. I didn't know it. I, you know, I came from very humble upbringings, um, but I'm going to make sure my kids learn this. So let me, I want to change the subject. We only have uh, about six or seven minutes left. I I'm dying to ask you this, George. Um, you know, you, you, because of two reasons. One, you were a diplomat, and two, you specialize in strategy. Well, that's a big area for you. Uh, it's an interest of yours. Um, so this thing that's going on with the Ukraine and Putin, right? As the this podcast is going out, um, you know, around March third of twenty twenty two. That's what it is today, anyway. Um, so I want to ask you this. Because I'm having a hard time finding it. Not that I've delved into it like really hard. So Putin's end game. He wants Ukraine to be part of Russia. Is that what his end game is? Um, I'm going to answer first, and then I'm going to explain where my answer comes from. Okay. okay. This is, as you know, this is super serious, right? Yeah. Um, that is not his end game. Okay. Okay. The end game is to reestablish the power and of influence Russia. of the Russian Empire. Okay, his self-image is along the lines of the historical figures of Peter the Great and others. Right. Yep. This is the he's from uh, Saint Petersburg, right? Or which was for a brief period was known as Leningrad, right? This is the this is the imperial seat of Russian greatness, right? And they see themselves as having fallen relative to other empires, right? And they want to have that reestablished. It's a very proud origin of, of, of instinct and motivation. These things are not rational, right? Therefore, it's very hard to imagine, right? A, a, a permanent, meaning like a stable 10 to 20 year uh, stopping point that includes just having control over the Ukraine. It's going to be, I am treated with the same fear and respect as Xi Jinping and China and, and Joe Biden and the United States. So with the amount of incredibly t 
terrible PR that Russia's getting amongst the every nation, all the people, even the people internally. Did he miscalculate that? Because if he goes down as being the next Hitler, is that fulfill his mission of being this great man? He, I, I believe that he believes, right, that the, that the rest of the world is going to blink, right? And there are many precedents in history where the other side blinked, right? Because he's willing to kill more, right? It really comes down to brute force, unfortunately, right? Um, and the, the horror of this is something that we have not, mo well, I, I don't think there is anyone alive with firsthand experience of World War II fighting. Maybe there's some really old, old veterans out there, right? Yeah. The, but there's been no real war of the same scale as happened in World War II and World War I, right? Everything that's happened since has had some degree of, of distance for, for large societies. So it's very hard for us to understand the types of risks that we're taking on right now. So we should be of the uh, awareness that he's not going to stop unless he's forced to stop. Right now, and, I don't, and so that would mean that would mean beyond the Ukraine. Yes, I mean he he should. If we can stop him within Ukraine, that's that that's that's an ideal outcome. I mean, I watch this every day. I don't know if the world is ready to stop him yet. Well, if he went outside to Ukraine, I you know you talk about NATO allies. Uh, you know, the United States is always reluctant to get into any war. I, I, you know, uh, especially like in World War II, it took us. You know, we had to be dragged into it, right? Um, you had to. You had to be attacked on American soil in Pearl Harbor. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. the number of horrors that happened in thirty-nine, forty, and up to December forty-one. I mean, none of that was enough. And even at that last minute, there were huge negotiations behind the scenes, right? Now, I'm not saying that, that a lot of people say past is prologue or history repeats. Of course, it doesn't exactly repeat. Some people joke that it rhymes, but everybody's well-educated. The, the decision makers are very smart in all these areas. But really what we're dealing with is who's making the decisions on a global level. Right. And for a long time, it's been the United States. And that is being challenged, I think, more powerfully by China. But because they don't feel that they're a peer of China, now Russia. Right. The, the, the one dimension that I've been reading about, which I was not fully informed of, is the relationship between China and Ukraine. They are actually quite tight partners. Ukraine technology helped China to create their first aircraft carrier, right? Yeah. So China has very serious military relationships with Ukraine, right? And that's why they're now hesitant that it's gone too far. Whatever deal that Xi Jinping made with, with Vladimir Putin, Putin took it farther than, than China thought he would. 
and they're having yeah. they're having meetings right now and they're trying to figure out what what's the right next step for them yeah, you know i don't i don't know if you knew this it just came out to yesterday that um uh, uh, russia didn't go into the ukraine on the behest, on the behest of bequest of china until after the olympics yeah yeah i mean and and yeah. now the now the paralympics have been destroyed I mean, um, the, the humiliation that China has now, by the way, the, the Paralympics are going to go, they're like, oh, that's a mess, right? And they're about to start their, you know, every five-year political congress uh, that decides the, the next big plan in China. And so this is like, oh, this didn't turn out the way we wanted it to, right? You've got things happening like uh, neutral countries like Sweden and Finland deciding that they might join NATO. Right. You've, yes. you've, you've got Ukraine applying to become part of the European Union. You've got Moldova actually cooperating with the European Union. Germany is arming. Like I never thought in my lifetime that we would be celebrating rearming Germany and Japan with nuclear weapons. Right. So things are changing in very, very strange ways um, in order to slow down and maybe reverse some of these changes, the, the events that are occurring between Russia and Ukraine have to stop and Russia has to withdraw from Ukraine's sovereign territory. And then there, has to, be, there has to be a new negotiation like a Vienna convention about how Russia needs to behave going forward. The, last thing, I'll, the last thing I'll say on this is we have made the, the same mistake at least twice where we humiliate the losing side. It happened after World War I. It happened af after the Cold War. These nations will always be powerful. They're large land masses with large populations with very, very advanced technology, let alone nuclear weapons. We can't humiliate really strong nations. They have to find a way to actually move forward even after the horrors that have occurred. Yeah, it's a the, the it's whole hard. It's, hard. it's real politics. It's real politics. Yeah, it's a it's it's a very long discussion. Very interesting stuff. Unfortunately, we got to move on. I hope this all gets resolved and someone kills Putin. To be honest with you, and then that'll resolve the whole issue. <laughs> I mean, maybe we'll get lucky here. Certainly, they tried to kill Hitler early on, and you know, but we'll see what happens. Remember, these are nations, and it's groups of people, right? And, and they're very powerful. And these groups of people have to come to a, 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 an, a an agreement, right? And it's never just one individual. Yeah. It's a scary right. time. Yeah. It's getting but, worse but, and but, worse. But if you're a business, you know, obviously trying to sell into Russia is not going to work right now. We've all had problems. I've had startups who are having problems trying to sell into China or use Chinese technology. This balkanization of markets is very different from globalization. So as you think about your international yep. strategy, you're going to have to be thoughtful and your supply chain logistics, all that stuff is part of strategy. And so you got to be, even if you are thinking, I'll never yeah. have to worry about geopolitics, I, I, you do, yeah. you do. Yeah. Well, the, the reason why I wanted to bring up the politics is because it does fit into our, our, our discussion about having a strategy, it, you know, and, you know, you need to have a strategy for your business. There's no two buts about it. So I'd like to thank so very much George Barnett from uh, the Strategy Toolkit for coming on to today's podcast. 
If you like today's podcast, please feel free to share it with a friend and also subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. And of course, if you're looking for a line of credit for your business, you can call us at 862-207-4118 or visit our website at fscreditline.com. That's FS as in Financing Solutions, creditline.com. George, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, how would they go about doing that? Well, number one is my is my strategy toolkit newsletter, which is on Substack. All right, so just just go to strategy toolkit um, at Substack.com, and and you know there's there's content there that's free. There's content there that's available on a premium basis, um, and uh, you know um, there's also other contact information there. You can email me or call me. Sounds good. Um, and for our listeners too, uh, if you're interested in getting any new business ideas, I tweet uh, daily, almost daily, about lessons for business owners at S. Halasnik, my name, which is S-H-A-L-A-S-N-I-K. And I want to thank you all for listening today. I just want to, you know, again, this is the heavy duty reminder. You got to have a strategy. It has to be well thought out. And then you execute. And then you go back at the strategy. You update it and then you execute. Business isn't really, really difficult. It's just following those steps. And, and I think people just go out there and they just kind of execute and they don't have a strategy. And that was what today is really about. So everybody, the weather's getting better. Hopefully, please, this Russia situation and Ukraine and everything, let's hope it all works out. Uh, it's unbelievable and everyone thinks this it's unbelievable in today's world that we have to deal with war again Uh, it's just so depressing so everybody just do your best stay pay attention to the news keep working on your business have a great day